Well, peace be with you. <laughs> That's not the customary way I, I open our teaching time together on the Lord's Day, as you know, but it is the way that Jesus greeted his band of disciples, and I thought it would be appropriate in light of our examination of the fruit of the Spirit that we call peace. If you were listening to our message last Sunday, you know, why Je- you know what Jesus means when he says, peace be with you. He means, may you be experiencing the wonderful peace that comes with your salvation. Jesus established salvation peace in those who are at war with God by reconciling them, if you remember, to God through his cross work. That's what we talked about, and it's a peace that is sourced in him. He alone gives it, and since it's grounded in a relationship with him, it endures throughout the Christian life, and right up until the time it anticipates, that is, the future glory of heaven. And if you've been on the receiving end of this salvation peace, then you know why this peace guards your mind and your heart. You've been pardoned from God's judgment. The worst is over, so there's absolutely nothing from anything of lesser consequence to fear. Jesus once said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but, but unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, since there is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus Anything less than condemnation is nothing for Christians to fear at all. You're fearless, completely at rest, strong and and confident, unmoved by whatever you encounter in life, fully content in your inner man. Now, we said more than that last, uh, last Sunday, but we said at least that. And that's the part that I want to emphasize going into our study this morning, Because the sad truth is, not every professing Christian enjoys in large measure this wonderful peace that comes from salvation. Many are moved by life's harsh realities instead. They don't feel fearless at all. Their souls are not governed by this peace, certainly not in their most trying times. And whatever peace they might enjoy doesn't seem to be very seems to be rather very much contingent upon what's taking place in their lives. And they're more than just a little concerned. Am I a Christian? Or maybe you're one of them. Or maybe you're asking yourself the same question. Well, here's a word of hope right off the bat. Jesus' peace that he gave you at conversion is a part of your new nature, part of your spiritual DNA. So you do have it. It's organic to you. It's in your spiritual genes. So the issue then is never whether you have the peace of God, but whether you're cultivating it. Christians will and often do fall short of experiencing in full this wonderful peace because, well, they're not cultivating it. And out of a a desperation, they turn to the world's counterfeits, what they had known their whole unconverted life. Beloved, that, that's a tragedy. Now, make no mistake, you have, you have to exercise the fruit of the Spirit 
called peace. You, just as you must with love and joy, you have to with peace. You have to with all of them. It's like a muscle, you see. If you don't exercise it, it begins to atrophy. You lose its strength. Now, it's always there. It's part of your anatomy, but it weakens the, the less you exercise it. Now, here's another way to illustrate what I'm saying. Every Lord's Day, just before our worship, when everyone's enjoying coffee and fellowship, you find me sitting over here in the corner of our meeting room, tuning my guitar so that I can lead us in singing our hymns as best I can. Now, depending on the temperature of the room, my guitar strings will either slacken or tighten. And if I don't tune them just to the right pitch, then the sound will, will not be a delight to your ears. In the same way, we need to keep our peace tuned up, since the temperature of our secular climate is always changing. And when, when you do, for our peace, remains, uh, our peace will remain constant. It will remain constant no matter the situation, because as you know, our peace is not situational. Rather, it's grounded in our relationship with Christ, remember? But it will wane from neglect because God has ordained it to be that way. Listen to the English Puritan Thomas Watson explain this. He says, quote, The godly man, the, the, I'm sorry, the godly may not enjoy peace through remissness in duty. When Christians abate their fervency, God abates their peace, end quote. You know that Jesus was called the man of sorrows, but don't think that he was not with inner peace in his mission. We can be sure that he epitomized God's peace in his life. So, so how, how is it that he, he did this? How is it that he maintained this inner peace, even though he was the man of sorrows. Does he know something that Christians don't? Well, he knew the necessity of seeking the God of peace. He knew fulfilling his will was important, remaining in constant, intimate communion with him, living by pure motives, and establishing peace in the lives of others. Now, these are not just trite statements. But they're vital elements in a process that make for vibrant peace. And I want to rehearse them with you to a greater degree. I want to rehearse them with you from, in the form of what you, you might think of a checklist. So cons consider it a tune obsession that can revive God's peace in you, and it can also help you to revel in it as well. So the first one is this. Do I regularly seek the God of peace in prayer? It's very important to check this this particular box, do I regularly seek the God of peace in prayer? You know, the Old Testament had a catalog of titles for God. Some God coin, some is people coin. They described a different aspect of God's nature that he manifested in a particular act. So take, for example, the title God Almighty. You're familiar with that. When God appeared to Abram, he referred to himself as God Almighty and then as only the Almighty could do, promised to make Abram into a great nation. God presents himself as Almighty in a context of human weakness. Abram's wife is not only barren, 
but both were well past the age of childbearing when God gives them a son, the son of promise. God can do this. He is the Almighty. Now later in Genesis 28, when an elderly Isaac blesses his son Jacob, who is soon to marry, he calls upon God Almighty to fulfill his covenant with Abraham through Isaac. He says, might he make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may become a multitude of peoples. And later when elderly Jacob was forced to send his youngest son Benjamin to Egypt at the request of Pharaoh's second in command, whom he didn't know was his, his long lost son Joseph, he did so reluctantly, and he sends him off with Judah, his oldest son, but not before he appeals to God Almighty to overrule any harm that might come to Benjamin. In Genesis 48:14, Jacob prays over Judah, May God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of this man, so that he will release to you your older brother and Benjamin. Well, there is also another title. It's God Will Provide. It's one that Abraham gave to God in Genesis 22. Now, this was in a context of having to sacrifice his son to God per God's instructions. According to verse 8, Abraham believed that God would provide a lamb to substitute for his son, and he tells Isaac, God will provide. The verb provide here is literally will see. The implication is God will see to our need and provide for us. God did provide for them. He provided a substitute for Isaac, a ram caught in a thicket. And in verse 14, Abraham named the place God will provide. Now what's even more interesting is Moses' editorial comment in the last part of verse 14. I'm going to read this to you. It, it, he interrupts the narrative, as all editorial comments do, with a personal word of instruction for the future people of Israel who would read this. And after he records Abraham's words, God will provide, he explains, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Huh, it's rather odd. What's he mean by this? Well, Moses' point to the people of God of his time is that they know God provides their needs since on the mountain of the Lord, which is another reference to the tabernacle, the place of sacrifice, they all experience God's provision. Moses links Abraham's title, God Will Provide, to worship, where God's people pray to him. God sees their need, and God provides. Consequently, they then see God in his provision to them. So worshipers long after Abraham, long after Moses, indeed, in David's time and far beyond, refer to God will provide as they pray to him in worship, where God met with them, saw their needs, and gave them the desire of their heart. One last example is God our banner. 
That was coined by Moses in Exodus 17:15, after God gave Israel victory over the Amalekites. Now Israel rallies under God, who is their standard, their reality, their truth. Later in Isaiah 11, verse 10, God promises to establish his Messiah, who will be that same standard of truth and reality under which the future people of Israel will assemble. It's no surprise, then, that in Psalm 60, verse 4, the psalmist prays to God and says, You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. What the psalmist prays for is that God's people will display their banner proudly, which in this case was most likely not a literal flag on a pole, but even if it was, as, as the Old Testament often used physical props to represent spiritual realities, what it would represent is what the people were to display. And what was that? What were they to display? What did this banner represent? It represented God's divine calling to be a distinct people with a distinct inheritance and a distinct mission. This truth, this reality, this calling was what would unite them. And in order to be successful in their mission then, to be a distinct people, they would appeal to God, our banner, for help. I think you get the idea. Whenever the Old Testament saints prayed to God to act in a certain way on their behalf, they used a title that captured that part of his nature, that produced that act. And when they faced unbeatable odds that only God was strong enough to conquer, they appealed to God Almighty. And when they were in need of divine assistance, they appealed to God our provider. And when they sensed their inadequacy to carry out their divine calling and needed motivation, they appealed to God our banner. The God of peace is another proper title for God. You may not know this. It occurs actually once in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, Gideon builds an altar to the God of peace, who Gideon was confident would bring peace to Israel in the presence of the menacing Midianites. Later, the psalmists would sing with the same confidence as Gideon, that true peace comes from God, even though they didn't use the title. They credited God for their national peace and for their individual peace in the midst of persecution from their enemies. And in Psalm 4, the psalmist knows God's peace and is able to resist the skepticism even of his own countrymen who find no evidence of God's favor anyway. Oh, but the psalmist explains in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, have me dwell in safety. You'll be interested to know that the New Testament writers not only knew the God of peace, but they used the title five times in appropriate contexts and in typical Hebrew fashion, as we've just seen, It's in the hope that Paul might be delivered from persecution 
and soon be enjoying fellowship with the Christians at Rome that he invokes the God of peace in Romans 15.33. In, in chapter 16, verse 20, Paul encourages the Roman Christians to remain steadfast amid persecution, assuring them the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The writer to the Hebrews refers to the God of peace to highlight God's act of reconciliation that he established peace. Listen to chapter 13, verses 20 and 22, to 22. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good work to do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's this God of peace, the writer adds, who has also equipped us to do what is pleasing to him, which is what those, who, those do who are at peace with him. And in Philippians 4, Paul assures believers who face inner turmoil and are plagued by sinful worry that if they ap apply the steps he gives in verses 6 to 9, the peace of God will guard their hearts and their minds in unsettling times. In such times, those who cause chaos in their lives by living on speculation rather than on truth need to pray to the God of peace. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul prays that the God of peace himself may sanctify the Thessalonians completely, a process whereby God continually moves believers further and further away from the state of enmity in which they used to be before conversion and closer and closer to the place of glorification in which they will commune with Christ face to face in perfect peace and rest. There's another passage that is perhaps the classic one on the peacemaking acts of the God of peace, even though that specific title is not used here. It's Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 18, Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, that is Jew and Gentile, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new person, in this way establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. We mentioned God's peace as a solution to racism last time. If you were here, you would remember that. Well, here's the proof. God unites two races that would have otherwise forever been at odds. Even if a Gentile converted to Judaism, the Jews would still not see him as their equal. Hence the existence of the two courts in the temple. You have the court of the Gentiles, and you have the court of the Jews. There is neither Jew nor Greek, however. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Adam's descendants, heirs according to the promise. 
Jesus. Is it any wonder that, that the champions of God of old cry out to God to restore one's inner peace uh, and they cry out to the God of peace, the God of peace who establishes peace among his people. Listen to God's champions of old. Lord, give strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace, Psalm 29, 11. He grants peace to Jerusalem's borders and sanctifies her with the finest of wheat, Psalm 147, 14. Paul prays grace and peace from the Father and Christ, Jesus, our Savior, to Titus, his true son in a common faith. And Peter prays the same for his congregation. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. If you display the peace of God, you are displaying what is the very fabric of your new nature, if it's lacking, it's not that it's not there, it's that you haven't nurtured it. You need to go to the God of peace and ask him to revive it. That is the place to begin. From there, I would say, number two, we need to ask, am I in the will of God? Am I in the will of God? We just read a portion of Second Peter 1, 2. Here's how it reads in full. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Another way to nurture biblical peace is to have a sound biblical knowledge of God's word. If you heard that knowledge is power, it's true, but I can tell you for sure that biblical knowledge is peace. Psalm 85 verse 8 says, I will listen to what God the, God the Lord says. He promises peace to his faithful servants. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. You see, God's word is a powerful force that creates order out of chaos. In the beginning, God brought order to the creation that was formless and void with his word. The psalmists speak of God taming the sea with his word, something the pagan world at that time thought was impossible. The last few chapters of Job are perhaps the greatest testimony to God's peacemaking efforts in creation. Here's just a smattering from verse 38. He enclosed the sea with doors when it went out from the womb bursting forth. I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. I said, as far as this point you shall come, but no farther, and here your proud waves shall stop. I bring rain on the land without people, on a desert without a person in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and cause the seeds of grass to sprout. The Lord, the Lord Jesus commanded the storm to be still, and it was instantly calm. He commanded demons to obey, and they obeyed. The prophetic word of Philippians 2, 10 through 11, assures a future time of order under Jesus' rule. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those are, who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue who confesses 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And the prophetic word of Romans 8.20 promises that the earth will be redeemed. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The prophetic word of John's revelation will create an eternal state of bliss, wiping away every tear. And we see the same kind of work, a peace-working activity of God as he interacts with people as well, not just, not just nature. More specifically, if he doesn't judge his enemies, he will transform them through the knowledge of the gospel of peace. He put to death prideful Herod, but he saved prideful Paul. There's no greater example, I, I think, than the conversion of the Apostle Paul when we talk about God's transforming peace that comes in conversion. The knowledge of the gospel established peace in Paul's life. And then he would go on to remind Timothy of the same fact in his own life, referring to the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom to salvation. And salvation gives us peace. It gives us God's peace and God's rest. Now, contrary to popular belief in American Christianity, God... Uh, 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 Christian must have sound and comprehensive knowledge of God's word if he's going to enjoy a godly, productive, confident, and peaceful existence until he goes to be with Christ. No question about it, beloved. God gave his word to us that we might make sense out of life. Without it, it becomes absurd, chaotic. Knowing how God's sovereignty bears on our everyday lives, the doctrines of trials and suffering, prayer, the Bible's teaching on peace, and much more. It stabilizes our lives. It develops an epistemology for us so that we know, we know what is right and what is wrong. If you don't develop a sound theology from the Bible that informs you as to how God would have you to think and act, then you put your organic peace at risk. You hinder it. We see Christians coming to our counseling ministry here at PRBC all the time that lack a solid and complete theology, so they don't know how they're supposed to think and act. Instead, they look to the world for some kind of booster shot to get themselves calm. They listen to the wrong voices. They interpret life and even the Bible from a worldly vantage point. You know, you can go to the Bible in order to interpret life, and know what changes you need to make to please God. Or you can go to the Bible and wrench verses out of their context to support your sinful habits. The first way cultivates peace, the second erodes it. Here's a fact, beloved. God's word creates order out of chaos, but man's word creates chaos out of order. Don't turn to human wisdom for peace. It will only create more chaos in your life. Rather, seek refuge in God's will. There's no better, no safer, no more, and, 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 and more peaceful place to be than in the will of God. Biblical peace thrives in a good knowledge and handling of God's word. Isaiah 26, verse 3 confirms that. 
prophet says, God will keep the mind that is dependent on him in perfect peace because it trusts in him. To trust in God means to do what he says. It means to obey his word, which is what cultivates godly peace. It's the truth that Mary discovered and Martha missed and why, therefore, Mary was at rest and Martha was racing. Number three, it's another box you need to check, and that is this. I, am I in communion with God? Am I in communion with God? You know, knowledge is in everything. And there are plenty of Bible book smart Christians in the church whose lives are an absolute mess. Remember, true peace is being in right relationship with him. And that begins with reconciliation, but it continues in sanctification. And what I'm saying here is that we can strain our relationship with God just as much by our sin as we can by our ignorance of his word. In addition to knowing and trusting in good theology, we also have to keep short accounts with God. Biblical peace thrives in a life of confession. Repentance leads to restoration and sound spiritual health. The champion of righteousness Praise, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you keep short accounts with God, it means that you are always checking to make sure that you, you, have, you have not offended God, you haven't grieved the Holy Spirit, that you're always contrite before God. Unconfessed sin leads to chaos. Listen to King David's testimony in Psalm 32. Here's verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. We're not communing with God if we're not contrite in carrying unconfessed sin. It just won't happen. And the longer we carry it, the worse it will become for us. Proverbs 28.1 is certainly addressed to the unsaved. But I think we can find a broader application to believers who carry around unrepentant sin, since at that moment they both look the same. So the sage says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Are you as bold as a lion? Or are you paranoid? You see what's happening here? When a believer's conscience becomes so convicted by his sin, he becomes unsettled, eventually even paranoid, always looking over his shoulder. Who's saying what? Who did this? Who's, who's following me? But the believer whose relationship with God is right has a clear conscience, and he walks a confident walk. He has no illegitimate fears. Stay in communion with God. Keep current with God. Confess sin immediately. Praise God through, through the day for his grace and new mercies. Ask regularly in Jesus' name that God would reveal his glory through you. Do you remember the psalmist, Psalm 23, who reclines at the table that God set for him in the midst of his enemies? We touched on that last time. The figure communicates the fact that a true worshiper can be completely at peace 
even in unbelievably difficult circumstances, when he is in close communion with God. It's like a lifeline. Of course, the opposite is true. We Christians will become quite upset, anxious, and disturbed in our souls when we're at odds with God, regardless of how well off we are from the world's point of view. We could be wealthy, well-fed, firmly in the lap of luxury, a luxury, wielding significant authority, all the things that the world prizes, yet be quite ill at ease because we don't have God's approval and pleasure. James says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As long as you maintain constant communion with the Father, as Jesus himself did throughout his earthly ministry, you maintain this inner peace. Peter says so in 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless by him at peace. Huh, to be blameless is to be at peace. But the two are not the same. Rather, blameless cultivates peace, the peace that is organic to us. But compromise your faith in some way, and your life becomes unsettled and more chaotic. To be out of the will of God breeds discourse and chaos. So commune with God, know his pleasure and approval, retreat to obedience and you will become a confident immovable Christian at peace we made the point last time that if you're at odds with God it doesn't matter if the world is for you you will be miserable and the opposite is also true if you're in fellowship with God pleasing him the whole world could be against you and it won't make a bit of difference. Order, rest, sanity, calmness, and confidence are found in a right relationship with the Almighty. Am I in communion with God? Fourth checkbox. Are my motives right? Are my motives right? To maintain biblical peace, regularly keep a check on your motives. Now, this is imperative because Jesus tells us that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Do you remember? All, all kinds of evils come out of our hearts. Jesus said murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander, a whole host of things. Wrong motives, especially sinful ones, left unattended, will produce havoc in the life of any Christian and even in the life of an entire church. If it gets to this point, we're in big trouble. This is the testimony of James, chapter 4, first three verses. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your bodily parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You, are you envious and cannot obtain? Well, then you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you don't receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. Constantly examine your heart to make sure that there's no sinful motives reigning there. 
external peace must come from internal peace or else it's empty. And an internal peace comes from a sincere devotion to God. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul reveals to Timothy his true motive behind his instruction, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Love God with all your heart, beloved, all your soul, all your mind. Make sure he is the object of your affections. Serve him with a clear conscience. Thomas Watson urged us, quote, labor for this blessed peace, peace with God and conscience. Oh, how sweet is peace of conscience. It is a bulwark against the enemy. It shall keep you as in a garrison. You may throw down the gauntlet and bid defiance to enemies. Fifth and finally, last box to check in your checklist. Am I a peacemaker? Am I a peacemaker? Part of kindling God's peace in our inner being is to promote it in the lives of others. I want you to understand this. In other words, it is to be a peacemaker. Listen to 1 Peter 3.11. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. Seek peace. We pursue peace, and not just within ourselves, beloved, but with in the lives of others. Being a peacemaker in the lives of others is an excellent way for you to cultivate your own inner peace that Jesus has given you. And there's a strong correlation between living out our peace before the world and seeing it established in the lives of others that might surprise you. For example, Paul explains in Romans 12, verse 18, If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. For if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but by overcome evil by good. Now, when you strive to maintain peace with evildoers, God may be pleased at times to bring conviction to them through your peaceful gestures, enough to soften their hearts to, to receive the gospel. In other words, living at peace with, with God before unbelievers oftentimes will challenge them to seek this very same peace with God in their own lives. At the very least, it will put them in the direction of reconciliation. 1 Peter 2.12 makes the point even more profoundly. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the very thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, be, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God on the day of visitation. So the idea is that God will convict the unbeliever through our display of, of peaceful and orderly living and if he comes to saving faith in Christ, he will praise God for the testimony you gave him. A peaceful life that you lived before him, orderly and confident. So let's talk about being a peacemaker in evangelism. 
There is among the items of the armor of God listed in Ephesians 6, the Christian's warrior's shoes. You know what he wears in the spiritual battle. Verse 15 says, and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. Those are his shoes. Now you might not have realized that the gospel is associated with feet just as much as it is with the mouth because God commissions us to take it into the world. Bring the words of eternal life to a lost soul is a beautiful thing. In Romans 10, 15, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul echoes Isaiah's proclamation, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So feet, you see, are not beautiful, but they are when they carry the gospel of peace that establishes peace between God and his enemies. Beloved, we're by nature peacemakers, and we need to pursue peace in the lives of others. When it comes to the loss, we speak God's transforming, redemptive word into their lives because we believe that God, if he is so pleased to do so, will take away their God-hate and transform them into genuine worshipers who love him and neighbor. So we evangelize. We follow the lead of our Lord himself, the redemptive word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. He was God's ordained servant, the one who brought peace to the lost. It was through Jesus' penal substitutionary work on the cross that God changed the hardest of hearts, hearts of stone to hearts of flesh with an organic desire to love him. He transforms his enemies into champions of righteousness, brings them from darkness into his marvelous life, from depravity, depravity's chaotic life that is a burden, and into the salvation rest and order. You know, rest, by the way, is a companion idea to peace in the New Testament. Oh, yes, it's used as a figure for salvation in Matthew, 28, uh, Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is talking about salvation. The writer of Hebrews speaks in chapter 4 of this same salvation rest that will be fully realized in eternity. Salvation is to know and experience God's rest, his peace, through the work of Christ alone. Jesus greeted his own sheep, peace be with you, because they had a saving relationship with him characterized by God's peace. And this is why the angels sang, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people on whom his favor rests. And why Jesus could tell forgiven sinners, go in peace. They had come to know God's salvation. Jesus is, of course, our divine role model. He reconciled us to God and established peace, and that should be our goal, too, as peacemakers, to preach the gospel with a view that God will reconcile the sinner. If you want to stoke biblical peace in your soul and taste the goodness of this spiritual, sweet spiritual fruit in your life, pursue peace for the lost, that they may be saved Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. 
I want to hasten to add, we must also pursue peace with one another, with other Christian brothers and sisters, which I would say is first and foremost. Paul said to the Ephesian church, be diligent to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And to the church at Rome, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And to Timothy, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Is this your mission? Your goal? It should be. If you've been reconciled to God, it should be. You are a peacemaker by nature. You have. Everything that God has, God has given you to establish this peace. Be about the work of, a, of making peace, and you will enjoy Jesus' peace. Well, it just seems appropriate, I think, to close out our time with words from the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have been on the receiving end of your peace, your salvation rest. We do pray then that as peacemakers, we would, we would be diligent to maintain our own peace, the peace that you have given us in Christ, this organic spiritual peace that never leaves us. We pray that we would take to heart these steps that we might cultivate it and know it and revel in it. And Father, we pray that we would also be extra diligent to, to see it established in the lives of others. We know, of course, oh God, that this is your business, but you have called us to be the means through which you work your redemptive, your redemptive work in the lives of others. We pray then that you would find us to be peacemakers all throughout our journey here on this earth. And should you come in our lifetime, that you would find us busy about this work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.